You're listening to The Sound of Pursuit. I'm Hal Humphrey. And I'm John Narduzzi. Today we're going to be talking about China and Iran hiring U.S. detectives unwittingly. After the U.S. shot down a Chinese spy balloon in the skies over North America, focus has been in the sky. But the Chinese government also had its eye on the ground, using unwitting private detectives in the U.S. to illegally obtain intelligence on dissidents in this country. Derek Taylor, a California-based private investigator who used to work as a federal agent with the Department of Homeland Security, allegedly asked a co-conspirator for information on the immigration status of political dissidents living in the U.S., people targeted by the Chinese Communist Party. Ain't it? Turns out, John, China is not the only one. Iran is another. One investigator, Michael McKeever, was hired for a seemingly routine job of surveillance uh, of a debtor who owed money in Dubai. But in reality, the target was an Iranian journalist who had criticized the dictatorial regime in her country. Um, I guess my question is, John, how does this happen? How do private investigators end up unwittingly working for foreign actors, foreign state actors at that? Yeah, and I think part of the thing that we wanted to do here was alert the profession, alert the PI industry that this is this is happening. It's there. These are not the only cases. There have been other cases involving U.S. based private detectives because we know how to get intelligence. We know how to do surveillance in this country, we know how to get background research. So some of these governments of countries like Iran, China, and other, I think it's fair to, fair to say, uh, non-allies <laughs> at a minimum, uh, they're, they're going to hire people in this country indirectly, and I think that's the key. Uh, although I think those two cases are very different, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about why they are different. And I think everybody has to be on guard. You have to have, be, have some tests in place to make sure you're not one of these people who is uh, is hired by one of these governments to to possibly break the law yeah and there was um a book written a couple of years ago about um the harvey weinstein case um and in oh, yeah. that case they had hired some some um some some foreign um operatives had hired some private investigators locally through a friend of a friend kind of thing. Um, and there were some, some real problems with that. So, you know, John, when you're, when you're dealing with a situation where you've got a client that you don't know, how do you go about protecting yourself from working for, you know, bad actors? One thing that I always do, and we'll get into the specifics a little bit of these cases, but I, at a minimum, this question has come up before in some of our discussions about, people that want to hire you anonymously, where you don't know who the true client is. Sometimes it's done through a lawyer. Sometimes it's done through a business. And sometimes dangled with that, and I've had it happen to me on on several occasions, is a large sum of money. So in other words, they're buying, they're trying to buy your lack of due diligence on your own client. Give you a big retainer. Sometimes it's bigger really than what the case warrants. And that's, that's a big red flag right there if you you know you, you they describe it as a simple surveillance case and they're giving you 50 grand but you're not going to know who the client is right there you should be stopping your tracks why why would somebody do that who's really behind it um, there's so many reasons not to do that uh, i can't even you know we, we could talk a lot, a lot about the different reasons one of them is uh, 
first off, you could be working against your own clients uh, who you trust, so you never would ever want to do that. And number two, I just think you should know where is this information going? It's just a kind of a bare ethical minimum that I think we should all care about. I'm not, I don't want to work for somebody like in these two cases here. Yeah, and the, the, the idea of, you know, most of the time when I'm asked to work on a case, I, I take the time to do a conflict check just to make sure that I'm not conflicted out, out of yeah. working on the case. Um, and you can't do that if you don't know who the client is. Um, exactly. And the other thing is, is yeah. $50,000 for two days worth of surveillance or whatever it is. I mean, there's this notion of reasonable and customary fees, um, which, you know, that varies state by state and, you know, firm by firm, but there is, there is a reasonable and customary fee that if you're, if someone's offering to pay you way above what is customary, what is reasonable, um, like you said, that's a red flag. That's a thing to think, wait a minute, does this make yeah. sense? Right. And, and I think some of the reasons too, that are given, and we'll, we'll go into one aspect of the, uh, Iranian case here. But one of the reasons that sometimes is given is the attorney or the front person is protecting sensitive information. So you can't get the information. You can't find out who the real client is because the attorney has to protect that sensitivity. That's the, there's a family involved or an individual. I don't buy that. Um, there has to be an element of trust between you and that person. And that includes having that sense of we're in the business of sensitive information. So you should never let your guard drop in that, that those kinds of situations. And kind of, uh, there kind are, of my, you know, we all know what the, go ahead. Kind of my thought on that is either I'm on the team or I'm not on the team. Right. Exactly. If you don't trust me, then find somebody else who you do trust, but that's, that's not a, I, I just will, will not partner up with somebody who already has doubts or whether they're real doubts or just sort of fake you know, fake doubts, take the money and don't ask any questions kind of uh, scenario. We had a, we had a long talk with, um, with another investigator out in uh, Los Angeles this past summer, um, talking about this very topic. And, and he was bringing up the idea of working for, um, Russian oligarchs. And a lot of times they will try to hire private investigators in the United States. And again, it's, it's, it's not always, immediately easy to tell that you're being hired by someone that's uh, possibly a bad actor. Um, but there are always red flags that you can look for. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I've had uncomfortable conversations. I mean, I was hired once I'm thinking of a, it was a wealthy gentleman in Boston who had a legitimate court case and we were doing interviews on that case. And the interviews is oftentimes a way that they're, they're legitimate interviews and you're getting information it can be used in the court case or you the person is sort of sending the investigator out to just bother people and some at some point pretty quickly we realized these people really had no helpful information uh we got some information from some of the witnesses about our own client and we had a very direct uh conversation with that client and just just cut them loose we said no no more we're done and return the unused fees and just moved on yeah, and, so. and and for investigators that come up with with a situation like this, you know, I, we we've had this conversation before. If if you've got to do mental gymnastics to get to a yes, um, that's your ethical compass telling you you might want to say no. 
Um, but you know, right. I've, I've, I've talked to investigators who have said, look, this is really good money and they're not asking me to do anything illegal. I'm doing surveillance, which anybody can do, right? You could, anybody could see what they're doing in the public street, but what are the implications of doing surveillance on someone who is possibly a dissident in another country? Yeah. And I think that that brings us to these two cases. One of these cases involves surveillance of, of a woman who was a journalist and, uh, my understanding reading the indictment and some of the case documents and news media pieces was that the investigator tried to do his due diligence and, and actually asked for some confirmation on certain things like who are her roommates uh what other addresses do you have like normal things that you would do if you're doing surveillance and his contact point an iranian agent fair to say was not giving that information and uh I think that that's the kind of thing where you, you know, you, you have to ask yourself, why is this information not coming? And if, again, these are some of these people are being indicted because they're breaking federal law uh, by working in that case. So you can say, I'm just doing surveillance, but if you don't know who you're doing surveillance for, you can't work for a foreign government. So we've, we've talked before about intended use and intended user. Um, and those two questions are kind of key for us for developing a scope of work and what we can and cannot do. And if you don't know who the intended user is and you don't know what the intended use is, you could get yourself into some trouble if you're not careful. Yeah. And, and just to add on to the, this idea that you, you can work for whomever you want, you can work for the U.S. government, foreign governments in some cases, but you can't work for a foreign government or an agent that has been declared to be on a, uh, you know, a, a, a list of people you can't do business with because of who they are. And uh, we all know what those federal lists are, the, you know, the exclusionary lists and debarred parties lists and those sorts of things. And uh, you have to know if the person contacting you is actually a front person for one of those companies. So I think that surveillance case is sort of unique in that aspect. Yeah, the and, other um, case involves classified documents. That's a little bit different. Yeah, so the surveillance case, um, w- was there an indictment filed against the investigator in that case? I believe he was warned more than uh, indicted. I, I think there were some indictments of other people, but I think he was sort of warned that, hey, you know, you're, wor- <laughs> you're working for the Iranian government here. And, yeah, uh, that, that, that in and of itself oh, is, is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in the but financial, the other case of all, I'm sorry, in the ahead. financial world, there's this, this concept of know your customer. Um, right. and, and I know legally that may not apply to us, but I think ethically it kind of does. Oh, I think absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I think we're obligated to do some basic due diligence on, on anybody who hires us, just as you said, for a conflict check, but also, just ethically, do you you should know who you're working for in every case, and don't be lured by sort of the promise of of big funds for looking the other way and not taking the normal steps. Right. Um, the other case you were talking about um, involved getting um, documents that are not public record. Talk to me about that one. Yeah, that one looks a little more straightforward. I mean, this has been reported maybe for the last couple of months, but. The California investigator used his old contacts and we've seen, you know, we all know these stories, you know, somebody leaves a federal agent agency or a state agency or a police force. 
they go back and they ask informal questions, stand behind somebody's desk, look at a computer. You hear these stories of people who have that ability and sort of it atrophies over time. Obviously, they can't do that sometimes four or five years because nobody remembers them at the office or people have retired. But um, in this case, he was asking for, for immigration status information. In some cases, I think even confirmation, maybe documents about people who are political dissidents and uh, and looks like he's been indicted. So that's that's a different twist than the first case. And that for me falls kind of in the same category as uh, you know the, the investigator who's out there and says, I can get bank records on someone. I can find their bank balances and where they have money and all this. I, I can get financial records, which is strictly verboten unless you have permission from the subject of an investigation. So, you know, yeah. at the end of the day, if you're, if you're going after something that is not allowed, um, if your client is asking you to get something that is not allowed, that's not even a hard question. That's a no. Yeah. And, and I would throw in also the old cell phone records, uh, information brokers, you know, the, the idea that you can just get somebody's cell phone records very clearly running afoul of federal law and uh you just have to move on from it you know you're gonna the sad thing is on some of these cases when you think about the amount amount of money that the person's being paid in this case one of the articles says the exchange was like uh you know expensive cuban cigars or a fancy tequila i mean you're giving information and risking your reputation for something it seems like you're just doing a favor but you got to be really really careful and think about what is it worth it you know for a nice box of cubans probably not probably not let's talk about the ethics of this you know can private investigators work for anonymous clients um and and why would one ever do that can they I don't think that, uh, again, I think the minimum standard of vetting your client, I, I don't think you can. And uh, if you run afoul of working of working against one of your old clients, they could you could be sued for that because the, the claim would be that you're using information that you gain in the course of a representation. Remember, if you're the if you're an investigator working for a law firm, working for an attorney, you're the agent of the attorney, all, all those uh, attorney client privilege and work product two different things they apply to you and you could be you could be breaching those obligations so um you can't do it yeah yeah i, think um, I really do i think it's a it's a firm line i think i don't think you can and might button might not be spelled out in the regulations that way but i think the practicality is you can't legitimately work for anonymous clients right um and how do you let's talk about how other investigators can vet their clients to avoid being used for, for, you know, bad actors. That's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, we all have the databases where we can quickly check to see if somebody is who they say they are. Does it match up with the phone number that the, the, the call came in on, or does it match up with the email? Does the website look legitimate? So you can certainly do that. And, um, in other cases, I, I think it's just a practical aspect. Like if we were talking about, if you're asking for certain documents and the client is not forthcoming or, or giving you resistance, that's that's I, that's a real red flag for me. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you 100 percent there. I think that's that's fairly um, straightforward. Um, 
and again, I like to work for attorneys. Um, I think there's a little bit of protection to me there when I'm working for an attorney. Um, that said, not all attorneys are cut from the same cloth. Some of them are out there doing, you know, dastardly deeds. Um, the, the benefit yeah. of working with an attorney in that situation is if you find out that they're out there doing dastardly deeds or, or representing foreign nationals or foreign government actors, um, you can then walk away from it um, and, and, and stop the work. Um, but, you know, it, it's a real problem. And I've seen several uh, stories of late along the lines of the ones you're talking about. And I was I was actually talking to Marcy Phelps um, mm -hmm. last week. Uh, amazing uh, reference librarian turned investigator over in North Carolina. Yeah. If, if, if you if anybody in the North Carolina area or anywhere in the country really needs some due diligence work, Marcy is an amazing investigator. And, you know, she, she talked about if I'm doing background research, um, for a merger and acquisition or something like that, and I find a watch list notice on my subject, that is a time to stop the investigation and call my client and say, Hey, this is what I found. You know, what do we need to do? I mean, it's, it's available to us yeah. as private investigators. It's a thing you need to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She's a great researcher. I've read her posts on different things and I think she's, she's right on target with that. Yeah. And, but I, I will come back on that a little bit. I've heard other investigators talk about having an attorney sort of as the, maybe like a seawall in between them and the, the danger. And I, I sometimes I feel like, they, some attorneys may be the danger, you know, I, I mean, not, I'm not talking about my clients that I trust and I've worked with, but I never assume just because somebody's a lawyer that they're going to be uh, accurate on some of the issues that we face and advising us on some of those issues. And, and I also feel that sometimes members of the public, I, we're almost in competition with lawyers in some cases. They don't want to, they might just need some information. You might, this might be a client. I, I, I still think it's fine to work for people directly in some cases, and I often do. Uh, but that's just a, a, a judgment call that everybody has to make. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I say I, I rely on my attorneys as a little bit of a foil, um, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, you've, you've never had an attorney lie to you, have you, John? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's never happened. <clears throat> I mean, attorneys, <laughs> attorneys are people too. Um, there are bad actors in that world, just like there are bad actors in the world of private investigators. Um, you know, my advice is work with attorneys that you're comfortable with get to know them. Um, you know, the longer you work with them, the more comfortable you get working with them. Um, and, and the ones that respect you as an investigator, are the ones you want to work for. Um, absolutely. So, yeah. Um, well, John, I think this has been an interesting little conversation. Uh, it certainly has been eye opening yeah. for me to think about those things. Um, real quick, before we get out of here, um, I had a chat with a friend of mine. This is a total non sequitur and I did not prep you for this. So, you know, you can say, I don't know or whatever, but, um, a, a very dear friend of mine named Chris, uh, has a young daughter who is, uh, just getting into, um, her, chemistry major at university and she's really leaning towards going into um forensic science and he was saying you know she's kind of curious about you know forensic science gets a lot of press in the criminal justice system these days 
Um, what are yeah. some things that you would give her as advice for how to work in that field? And I'll tell you what I said first, and I want to get your take on it. Um, what I told yeah. him was tell her it's good to be a science nerd. You have to, to do that job. Um, it's good to know the chemistry inside and out. But if you're going to be in the criminal justice field doing that kind of work, learn how to explain very complex things in very simple terms so that normal human beings can understand it. Um, that was my advice. What What are your thoughts on a, a kid going into, you know, their second year university, thinking about going to, you know, forensic science, what would you say to them? Related to that, I think obviously this this person has the chops, the science chops to succeed in that area, to do forensics. The, the ability to write, the ability to communicate cleanly, as you said, to, to non-experts is the key because we always, we, you and I both review expert reports and the, the ones that are long and filled with jargon and scientific terms and things that nobody else understands other than the writer don't go very far. The succinct summaries that you sometimes get written, but written by somebody who really understands it, worth their weight in gold. And I've seen that on so, on so many cases where we, we talk about what expert was really valuable. We'll say they get that cell phone forensics guy that just explained everything, how a cell tower works very cleanly with you know, uh, examples and analogies that, that we could all understand. Phenomenal. Great. So I think learning how to write, learning how to testify, learning how to communicate to lay people is the key yeah. because they've already got the science background. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we also Great talked move, though. We also talked about the, um, you know, you've heard this term, you've been in the courtroom a number of times, the CSI effect. Um, yeah. You know, juries want to like, you know, get a final determination that this person's DNA was found in the hotel room. It's like, you just can't say that. Right. Yeah. And really, instead of the CSI effect, you just have the dueling experts and which one is is telling the story, the plain story in, in a more uh, creative or or uh, uh, telling way. You know, the details that, that really sway a jury. So sometimes you're right. There is no CSI effect. It's it's who's telling the better story. I mean, I think at the end of the day, a trial is nothing more than a storytelling competition, um, and the better storyteller almost yeah. always wins. Um, I, yeah. You know, talk about the dueling expert thing, and this will be the last thing we talk about before we, we part ways for the day. Um, I've been in trial situations where there have been two experts on opposite sides of an issue, and they get into jargon and they get into their own little world, and they're arguing minute points of whatever the topic is. And not only is the entire jury just about to fall asleep, the judge is about to fall asleep and ain't yeah. nobody getting anything out of that. Yeah. Those are, those are the afternoons that you dread where you're sitting there realizing you got four more hours of that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, John, thanks for being here today. This has uh, been a good chat and um, we'll, we'll take this recorded version of the podcast and get it published here in the next little bit. Um, Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. First day of spring and uh, looking forward to doing, doing more. I busted out the, uh, 
the plaid baby came out on the first day of spring with the plaid jacket, which I know violates all the rules of podcasting, but you yeah. know, here's the thing. <clears throat> you can wear whatever you want as long as you wear something. Thank you. As long <laughs> as the door opens. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to The Sound of Pursuit. I'm Hal Humphreys. I'm John Nardizzi. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks. Thanks.